0: This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we bring to a close our discussion of the Gospels with a brief look at the resurrection and the Great Commission. The end of session three, almost coming. Got a capstone lesson left, but
1: let's wrap her up today. All right, now, uh, we're going to talk resurrection first. This is, if you remember, my talk a couple episodes, a few episodes ago, Brent, I talked about the whole last week and how... The whole like crucifixion and Christmas and resurrection, it's a hard thing for me to talk about. It's not going to change today, but uh, we've, uh, we'll have we read it here in a moment because we've got to get every verse of chapter 28 in. We still have to read our last chapter of Matthew. So we'll be reading it here in just a moment, but we did link in the show notes. I do have some notes written up here. I have some thoughts I'll share today. But we have the last two uh, Resurrection Sundays that we've had at Real Life. We're going to link them in the show notes if you want a little bit more preachy, a little bit more uh, uh, poetic, a little bit more substance, a little bit more art, a little bit more of the stuff that captures the essence of resurrection. Feel free to listen to those. Um, so we're linking them there. I hate to study this story because it just feels so cold and academic and I hate it. So
0: so we're going to do. Brent, give us the first uh, four verses of Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The greatest event
1: in all human history. There are great debates that take place in the nature of Christology. It's a fancy term for the theology of Christ. If one were to think about Jesus' life in the realm of incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, three things, incarnation. What's the incarnation, Brent? What does that mean? The birth. The birth of Jesus, the Jesus becoming flesh, Jesus God becoming becoming flesh. a man, yeah. Okay. And crucifixion, obviously. His death. Death and resurrection. His new life. New life. Some of my favorite modern theologians have, have some great thoughts surrounding which one of these might be most significant. I can hear you groaning already through the podcast. I can hear it through my microphone, our listeners. (laughs) Oh. Saying, aren't they all significant, Marty and Brent? Yes, they are. They're all significant. And they're equal. Of course they're equal. And yet our theology is shaped by which of these three we choose to view it through. Of course they're all equal. And yet, practically speaking, we all pick theologically Which one of these we preeminently, we give preeminence to, can we put as our first lens, our first filter through which we're going to see these things? Much of evangelical Christianity clings to the idea of substitutionary atonement. In short, this idea that Jesus died your death, uh, we'll talk more about this in session four. And in this obvious conclusion, uh, the work would be which one of the three, if it's penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which one's going to be most important, Brent, incarnation, crucifixion, or resurrection? The crucifixion. Crucifixion, absolutely. Well, an obvious conclusion for followers of this theory of atonement, it raises very important christological questions about the life of Jesus, let alone the resurrection. I remember the story, uh, Passion of the Christ, produced by who? Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. That's Excellent everyone, okay. movie trivia, right there. Okay, right, right at the, uh, right at the very like the opening line, there was a a, a screen that comes up. Uh, I think it was the opening. It might have been the closing. I think it's the opening slide, like the opening screen, though. I've only seen it once. Yeah. Uh, and it says, dying was his reason for living. Dying was his reason for living. It, it almost makes it seem like everything else, was it just filler? Was, a resu- was the resurrection a neat magic trick at the end to just be like, ta-da, look, I really am God. Like, what what is, if, if dying was his reason for living, I like to spin it around. And I, I like to say... Living was his reason for dying. Like Jesus was more interested in our life before death. That's why he went to the cross. Greg Boyd, uh, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, loves to argue uh, about the, for the preeminence and centrality of the crucifixion, not because of substitutionary atonement, but just for other ideas. His idea is that God, uh, his plan and his nature is revealed perfectly through his work on the cross. Everything we see in the world of theology should be seen through the lens of the crucifixion. Um, Yeah, I've actually had a couple Twitter exchanges with Greg Boyd on Twitter. It's fun. Uh, He's been really good-natured about that. It's been a lot of fun to go back and forth. Another of my favorite thinkers, Tony Jones, Uh, we've recommended his books before. Uh, He comes from the school of what I call solidarity Christology and loves to raise points about the preeminence of the incarnation. There is the idea that God came to join us in solidarity. He came to join the struggle, the cross being the ultimate end of that work of solidarity. It's the idea of, jo- of God joining us that drives theology. We'll talk a lot more about that in like Hebrews, right? I believe so. It's going to come up in session four, I think. Uh, I, however, like to believe in the preeminence of the resurrection. Since the very beginning of this story, we've said this story was about what, Brent? Uh, what would we call this story? All the way back in session one, what do we call it? This story is a... Is a narrative. It's a narrative. And this narrative is titled? A Tale of Two Kingdoms. A Tale of Two Kingdoms, right? Like, we have to go all the way back to the beginning to get this whole, and what do we call those two kingdoms? Empire versus Shalom. Empire and Shalom. Empire and Shalom. We have experienced the struggle between these two kingdoms, uh, between truth and falsehood, between the two orders, the order of death and the order of life. And we know these orders well. The order of death, things like cancer, Greed, adultery, selfishness, disease, disasters, corruption, fear, those things. And then there's the order of life, and we know that order well. Love, mercy, forgiveness, hope, joy, healing, redemption, second chances, and those things. Light and darkness. Since the very beginning, we have found ourselves in the tension between which order is most true. Like we said it from the very beginning, Brent, this whole Bible from Exodus to Revelation is going to be a tale of two kingdoms and which kingdom is going to, which kingdom wins and which kingdom does God sit behind and what, how do these two kingdoms interact? Um, We've always been talking about this. As we looked at the world around us, it would seem that the order of death is winning It would seem that cancer has taken far too many of our family members. The greedy are the ones with all the power. Disaster cannot be thwarted, and death ultimately wins. I mean, what is more finite than death? And I'll actually preach on that in one of those links that we have from one of those sermons this year. What is more real than the idea of at the end of it all, you die? In the beginning, we were invited to trust the story. At its core, the invitation of Genesis was an invitation to believe in the reality of the order of life. The great fall of humanity happened, and happens, because we choose to live in fear, insecurity, and doubt. We begin to see the wind and the waves and believe that, in fact, the order of death does get the last word. You see, Brent, we didn't actually get away from session one. We didn't get away from our core principles. This whole Jesus thing has been a playing out of, a taking the story and putting it in flesh of empire and shalom, of order and of disorder, of life and of death. All throughout Tanakh, we are posed this question. Moses set before the people in Deuteronomy life and death. Joshua invited the Israelites to follow Adonai, and if not, pick which other gods from the order of death they would like to choose. The prophets pleaded with their brothers and sisters to repent and put their trust back in the order of life. Ezekiel was asked about hope, about death, about life. He was shown a valley full of what, Brent? Dry bones. Dry bones. And asked what question? Can you remember? Can these dry bones live? Can these bones live? Ezekiel was a man of hope. He said, Sovereign Lord, only you know. What do we truly believe about life and death? Understand that the resurrection changes everything. On that fateful morning when the tomb was found barren and empty, God finally answered the question that he had allowed only Ezekiel to see in a vision. Apparently, death isn't as real as we thought it was. And that changes everything. Paul does not say in the 15th chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians that without the crucifixion, their faith is in vain. As enamored as he is and other authors of the New Testament are with the incarnation, which is an, a wonderful truth. He did not give such an
0: idea of that place either. Instead, Paul says the following. Brent, give me uh, 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If there is no resurrection, your faith is
1: useless. That was what verses, by the way, Brent? 12 through 14. Now, I have stood in a handful of tombs uh, in my time studying in Israel and even in Turkey. Uh, I've stood in a few that even claim directly or indirectly to be THE tomb. Capital T, capital H, capital there's one thing that's true about all these tombs. Brent, I'm sure you can tell me what it is. Uh, there's nothing in them. There's, they're all empty. They are all empty. Resurrection is God's affirmation that the order of life really does get the last word. The way of generosity really is the best way to live. Forgiveness is worth paying the price for, and love really does win. Resurrection is God's way of saying hope is worth it, and the story really can be trusted. I choose to be a person of hope. He is not here. He is risen.
0: All right, Brent, unless you've got some questions, give me some more verses. Matthew 28. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. I'm going to stop you right there,
1: Brent, actually. Have you read that next verse here in just a moment. One of the most fascinating things that my teacher, Ray, ever pointed out to me was that the Great Commission and the Ascension of Jesus were not the same event. I don't know how I could go to church my whole life, study the Bible as much as I had up to that point and not realize. I had just assumed that Jesus kind of uttered the Great Commission, like right before he ascended. Like that was always my assumption. Um, being the culminating event of more than one gospel, I had always assumed that Jesus had given the Great Commission in the same speech where he ascended. But this is clearly not so in the text, and I couldn't believe it when he taught me that, that I had missed it before that moment. It's plain to see from the opening of the book of Acts that Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives. So we know the Ascension happens just outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. That's found within uh, the records, um, except for Mark, but Mark is totally circumspect. We've already said that everything after verse 8 of Mark 16 is garbage. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say it that strongly, but that's how I feel about it. (laughs) Um, And uh, other other than the historicity of the Gospels, nobody's debating the fact that the Ascension happened right outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. What I never realized is the record of where the commissioning took place. What's the next verse Jesus is talking to who Brent Jesus is talking in your passage to talking to the women and he's time to go tell
0: the disciples that he's risen and what does he say then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee there they will see me to go to Galilee like what like Galilee is that is that Jerusalem Brent no <laughs> no
1: that's gonna be a good uh, a three-day run or a six-day walk seven-day walk a good week-long journey. All the way back up to the
0: Galilee region. That sounds like a good bucket list item.
1: Yeah. It's to go do To do, do that. a walk from Heck, Jerusalem yeah. to the
0: Galilee. Absolutely. All right, go ahead and give me some more. Give me some more verses, Brent. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. All right. So the disciples end up
1: uh, headed that way. Besides the fact that Jesus has to show up to repeat the angel's instructions, uh, I find this to be a brilliant rabbinical move. Well, I've never been able to find any hints as to which mountain Jesus is referring to. The disciples seem to understand whether it was Mount Arbel, is a mountain that we've been on, Brent, in the Galilee. But is it a mountain? Mountain, like it's a it's a high point. It's a high point. It's kind of weird, though. I don't know if it'd be Mount are Like, are they in the Galilee? Galilee, like the Galilee is actually a really big region. Um, is it some other peak? Were there any other mountains outside of Mount Arbel, Brent? Sure. Like uh, like I mean, like mountain mountains. Like, well, think of your time in Galilee. Like, and, excuse me, let me rephrase my question. Like around the Sea of Galilee, are there any other mountains? I don't know. Not really, Not, because Mount Arbel. Yeah, like, that's it. Like you have to go at least some miles that's away from the Sea That's definitely the of vantage Galilee.
0: point. Yeah, I guess the other places that we were at were higher up, are actually quite a ways away. Quite from. a ways away. Yeah, we got a little, little bit water. of
1: a bus ride. At least uh, forty minutes in a bus, an hour away. Right? Okay. So it could be one of those other peaks, quote unquote, kind of like the Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Like that's just a little, uh, like a rise, like a hill. What mountain is he referring to? Could be some other mountain in the region of the lower upper Galilee. It's debatable. Something like Gamla. Somewhere like Gamla. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's a little, little knoll back in there. But Jesus does not instruct the women to tell the disciples about a mountain. Nor are we given any indications they did. Like, he doesn't say, you know, this mountain. Go to, he just says, go to the mountain. I'd like to suggest that they went to Mount Hermon, where I personally, if you remember, where did I put that? What story do I have there, Brent? It's a Jesus story where Elijah shows up. Oh, the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration, right? So, I'd like to suggest they went to Mount Hermon, which meant Holy Mountain. And we talked about it with Transfiguration. Now, the the traditional mountain, I'll let you, extra credit, Brett, can you remember the traditional mountain that they have? What did they say? Where do they think the, where does tradition say the Transfiguration happened? Oh, I don't know. Mount Tabor. Mount oh, Tabor. Okay. Mount Tabor. Okay. So, I suggested it was Mount Hermon. I don't think tradition is correct here. Um, anyway, nevertheless, I think this is because the phrase, that appears in both sets of instructions from Jesus and from the angel. There you will see him, is the words that they put. It seems to me that one of the most crucial moments of Jesus' ministry was a transfiguration, where Jesus was seen in glory. He was seen. Jesus was seen in glory. Of course, this is neither here nor there. No pun intended. If I'm correct about Mount Hermon, the reason I think this is so brilliant is because it accomplishes two things. Number one, the disciples who are in Jerusalem at least uh, at least at some point after the resurrection have to now travel all the way to the northernmost point of Jesus's ministry. If you remember, Mount Hermon, Brent went all the way up of what what's modern day uh, the Golan Heights, and just um, up on top of the Golan Heights, uh, right up there towards the tip of Syria, like where it meets where Israel meets Syria, we're all the way up there. They now have to go from Jerusalem, more in the south. All the way up to the—and it's just north of—can of, uh, you remember where we were at, Brent? We were at Mount Hermon. We were just up above which story? Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. That's where Mount Hermon's at. Like, they have to go all the way up here. Caesarea Philippi is one of the—if you remember, Mount Hermon, one of the three sources of the Jordan River. It would force the disciples to walk right past almost literally every moment of Jesus's ministry. They would have the opportunity to walk by and unpack all of Jesus's teachings post-resurrection— Once they get back to the mountain and receive the commission, they will have to walk all the way back because the ascension happens where, Brent? Uh, The Mount of Olives. (laughs) To the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem. They would now have to walk all the way back all those days that they already walked to get there and receive the commission. That's a brilliant field trip from a rabbi. Especially because at Caesarea Philippi, this is my second point, what did Jesus say he was going to do at Caesarea Philippi? I mean, this was a huge defining moment in Jesus' ministry. It was where Jesus said he was going to what? Build his church. Build his church. Wouldn't it make sense as he wraps up his time on earth before his ascension that he would utter the Great Commission in the same location where he said he would do his work? And wouldn't it make sense to utter his command to make disciples of all nations, all nations, at the same place where he marched his disciples to teach them that the kingdom of God was coming to all people, even to the very gates of hell. But then there's the command that Jesus actually, that's just a hunch. This is a little fun little field trip we just took right there. Uh,
0: but then there's the command that Jesus actually does give his disciples. So Brent, how about we finish out Matthew 28? When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, hold on. I'm going to stop you right off the bat here. It, it said that some worshiped him, but what? But some doubted. I love that we're told that some of the disciples doubted.
1: Uh, Before one of the greatest and final commands Jesus gives in his early ministry, we are told, like, if you're writing this story, you don't have people doubting at this point. You definitely have, like, everybody on board, everybody giving Jesus a thumbs up, ready for the final commission. Let's do this thing. And the authors are like, half the group was like, "Mm, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And I'm not sure I'm down with all this. Uh, So I just love that. Jesus commissions them anyway. Like, does the text tell us, Brent, that he separates the ones who believed from those that doubted?
0: No. And yeah. even Peter is reinstated at this point. Yeah. It says the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain.
1: Absolutely. Yep. He does not separate the sheep from the goats for the Great Commission. He doesn't put the doubters in one pile and the believers in another. Apparently, it's a, a big passion for Bema. I'm, I am totally down with this statement. Apparently, doubt is acceptable for commissioned disciple makers of Jesus. That's what we do, Brent. Bayma's about doing that. That's good news because I have some great moments of wrestling. Don't you? I hope all our listeners do. It's okay to admit that nobody is listening. Although you may look quite odd if uh, you're listening to this podcast and you're speaking out loud. Jesus tells them all authority. Oh, go ahead, Brent. I'm stealing your. I'm stealing your thunder here. Go ahead. <laughs>
0: All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right, let's
1: unpack this to end this podcast. Let's do it backwards. Let's talk about teach them. He had three things. He said, teach them, baptize them, make disciples actually said it in the other order make disciples baptize them teach them let's go backwards teach them Jesus wants his followers to be teachers one of our jobs is to open our eyes and assist others in opening their eyes to the truth and reality of what God's story is doing all around them we aren't to bring them to some holy place where they can where they can see God no we are to help them see God everywhere like he didn't tell them hey go get everybody and bring them to mount hermon where they can see me he says no you've seen me now go and help other people see me everywhere we are to teach others about god as seen in the person of jesus christ we are to pass on his teachings as we've discussed before i'm not sure how we're going to fulfill this command if we do not know his teachings so we better get what in us brent the text we better be working on getting the text in us so he says teach them we're gonna have to have the text if we're gonna teach him we can't teach him his words if we don't know his words but then he says baptize them. if you remember the act of baptism is an act of repentance we are inviting people to return home. We are inviting them to come back to where God originally created them to be. We are bringing people good news about a far better kingdom. There's a new king and a what, Brent? A new kingdom. A new king and a new kingdom. Better than the one that they're accustomed to. We're marking entrance into this kingdom with a washing, a cleansing. It's a putting on of a new self, we're told, in the New Testament, and a washing away of the old. This new reality is throwing the lights on for people everywhere, setting them free. We're teaching them. We're baptizing them. We are making
0: disciples. This is the portion. Go ahead, Brent. A question on the baptism. Yeah. So for the Jewish people that they're talking to, uh, they're going to have mikveh as part of their... Absolutely. Absolutely culture already and readily available all over the place right so what about the gentiles
1: yeah and that's going to be the scandal of this whole new testament and some of this we're just going to leave for session four because that's where we're headed next but yes this whole idea of baptizing all nations well i don't know how many synagogues they're aware of that are going to let a gentile get in their mikvah
0: well not even that just um just the question of what do, do the Gentiles even have a concept of mikvah or baptism uh, or anything? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: there would be some pagan rituals. It wouldn't be like a totally outlandish idea to them. And it kind of even just makes sense. Just, uh, when you just look at it, you're like, okay, it's like a spiritual bath you're taking, right? If I understand it correctly. Um, so it's going to be easy for them to relate. And there are some things, I wouldn't say every God had one, but, uh, you were with me in Turkey when we studied Asclepius. And before you go to the Asclepian, you go through a ritual cleansing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Before you go into there. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and other things, uh, Demeter had some washings that took place. Uh, there are a couple different pagan gods, so they would have been used to the idea of especially cleansing before you. And yet, this is something. This is something unique. So it's something they're used to. Again, it's God meeting people where they're at, using a language that they're familiar with, and but also doing something unique and different. And this is different than the Jewish baptism. It really is. That wasn't strong enough in my teaching before. But when you're going to get to your New Testament later, you're going to see Paul. Uh, meet a guy by the name of Apollos. And he's going to be talking to him about baptism. And Apollos is going to say, well, I have John's baptism. And Paul's response is going to be, oh, no, 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 no. What we're doing is not that. So John was doing an Essene, if you remember, Essene Mikvah, Tavilat Shuvah, baptism of repentance. And Paul's point is, "No, no, 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 we're not just doing Tavilat Shuvah we're doing something that's connected to the Holy Spirit and the kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. So there's something there. And I don't even have all the answers for that, but there's something unique and different about this baptism. That is something that I just didn't make strong enough in my earlier teachings. All right. Make disciples. It's a big passion of mine. This whole discipleship thing. Yeah. I mean, be discipleship. Kind of is our, kind of is my jam. This portion is the one that gets me in the most trouble, personally. I say this because I I, I don't believe the Great Commission is inviting us to make converts. Uh, I I don't believe Jesus is inviting us here to call people into deeper spiritual formation or mentorship. Uh, By the way, I I love the idea of making converts. That's great. I love evangelism. I'm not not speaking against that. I just don't think that's what the Great Commission is doing. Uh, I do not believe the Great Commission specifically is a call to spiritual growth or maturity, Obviously, I believe in spiritual growth and maturity. It's not what I believe the Great Commission is. I believe that, like the rest of the Bible, I need to hear this command through the ears of context. The call to make disciples is a call to rabbinical, come follow me discipleship. It's a call to find people who are willing and able to spend their whole selves becoming just like what, Brent? Like their rabbi. Like their rabbi. We talked before in earlier episodes about the process of discipleship, about how a disciple wanted to know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does in order to be just like the rabbi in his walk with God. This is what the call of discipleship is. I would expound on this, but I'm not sure where I would stop, if I'm honest. It's one of my greatest passions. Come to Israel with me. You'll hear me talk a lot more about that. There we go. Come to Israel. I'm not sure why so few are making disciples the way that Jesus made disciples. It seems like a recipe for foolishness to me. Uh, The call of discipleship is not, and this is where I get in trouble. I I don't believe the call of discipleship, rabbinical discipleship, rabbinical discipleship. I don't believe that's a call for everyone, but it should be for someone. I I mean, how many people were disciples in Jesus' day, Brent? How many, like disciples,
0: uh, well, Jesus said 12 and we, we think maybe there were a hundred total,
1: right? We're we're talking like less than 1% of the general population. Do you think all the other Jews were sitting at home going, Oh, I'm not a real Jew. No, of course not. Like they're sitting at home going, I'm a total worshiper of God. Totally follow Torah. My call is not discipleship. That's for a very select few. Yeah, it's just a passion of mine. I could be wrong. I could totally be wrong. I could totally be wrong. By the way, to all the listeners who like to send me emails. It's totally cool. I could be wrong. It's true.
0: I could be wrong. I mean, Paul definitely would uh, lend some credence to that. He gave some to be teachers, some to be apostles, some to be, you know. And we're going to look at the very beginning of session four. We're going to look at Paul. We're going to look at Paul's life. We're
1: going to see if Marty, maybe there's more going on here than just the Great Commission. We'll see if Marty's on or something. I don't know. Maybe Marty's just wrong. This is the reason I got into campus ministry. It was hard for me to fit this whole discipleship model into the church. Like, we don't pay people to do this in the church, but somebody needs to be finding ways to look at a student and say, come, follow me. Like, I got into campus ministry because it was a whole group of people that were technically adults, but they also, like, they were in this weird limbo. Like, they they weren't married typically. They don't have mortgages. They haven't signed their life away. They have a certain level of freedom that nobody else had. That's why I got into campus ministries, because I wanted to look at somebody that had freedom, but not... It had like a more complete autonomy and say, hey, you can come follow me. What do you mean follow you? I mean like every day, all day. Like when you get it done with college, come follow me, get paid to get up when I get up, to eat breakfast with me, lunch with me, dinner with me, hang out with my family, live life with me, disciple, rabbi. And the best part of this whole thing is that Jesus doesn't do the normal rabbi thing. Typically, rabbis would pass on their authority to at least one or some of their disciples so that the story might continue. But we're listening to a resurrected Jesus talk here. He's very much alive, and he keeps all the authority for himself. What did he say, uh, Brent? All authority? In heaven and on earth. Has? Has been given to me. To who? To Jesus. To Jesus. He ain't giving it away. We are to go and make disciples. We are to make disciples the way that Jesus made disciples. We are commissioned in the living authority of Jesus, living authority. And when the going gets tough and the mistakes happen and the fear is overwhelming, what's that very last line, Brent? Read it to me one last time. And
0: surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Good closing words for session three of Bayma Discipleship Podcast. There we go. The end of the olam.
1: The end of, of this olam. This love. Uh, this love. I like
0: it. Got a capstone lesson. It's coming your way next. All right, but that pretty much does it. We we did it though. We did your crazy idea of every verse of Matthew.
1: Every verse of Matthew. Session three is probably uh, a few months longer than it would have been. But hey,
0: we got it. Uh, yeah. Over. No, we we promised and we delivered. No over under situation going on here. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Baymaw podcast. We'll be back with you uh, to sum up the entirety of session three in our capstone episode. This is the Baymaw podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host. Co-post. <laughs> Copost. post Co-pilot. Co-pilot. I'm a co-pilot. <coughs> uh.